Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, President and Editor-in-Chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. All right. Welcome, everybody, to uh, another episode of This Week in Global Development. I'm Raj Kumar, the President and Editor-in-Chief here at DevX. I'm joined by my colleague, Michael Igo, who is a senior reporter here. Hey, Michael. Hey, Raj. How are you? Uh, doing great. And we've got a repeat special guest in our friend Fatima Sumar. Hi, Fatima. Hi, Raj. Hi, Michael. Great to be with you. So nice to have you here. And Fatima is, of course, the executive director over at Harvard's uh, Center for International Development. And it's great to have you this week, given all the topics we're going to get into, Fatima, because you've got so much experience inside U.S. government, kind of on all sides of it. You were a VP of Compact Operations over at the Millennium Challenge Corporation, just in this Biden administration. Uh, you were also a DAS at the State Department, and you, you know, worked on the other side, too, uh, you know, over in the, in the Senate, uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee as a senior professional staff member. So I think it's going to be really valuable as we dive into some of the big stories we're covering this week. And the biggest is uh, a really a large-scale investigation that we just published in the early hours this morning, uh, written by none other than Michael Aga, we have here on the line. Congrats, Michael, on, on getting this out, along with uh, a couple of good collaborators from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Ben Stockton and Ms. McCann were your, uh, your co-writers on this, on this piece, which uh, involved a lot of research, a lot of, a lot of in-depth coverage of what is the world's largest foreign assistance contract, I think, now or ever. So you know, maybe, Michael, just give us a quick overview. What, what is the story about? What does it find? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Raj. So this is an investigation USAID's Global Health Supply Chain Project, a roughly $10 billion um, co- contract um, that essentially coordinates the procurement and delivery of all of the health commodities that supply the major global health initiatives that everybody on this call has, like PEPFAR and President's Malaria Initiative and big uh, family planning efforts that USAID implements. Contract was awarded in 2015. At that point, it was sort of a, a major event in USAID contracting world because Comonix took control of this project. And in its first few years, the project ran into some pretty significant challenges, which we uh, documented pretty extensively at the time. And then, you know, appeared to turn things around very significantly. And the, the sort of key metric that was being reported on, the, the key piece that people were looking closely at, was uh, the project's ability to deliver shipments on time and in full. Uh, and at its worst, um, that metric declined to 7%. And, um, and the story was sort of one of recovery. And I think what our investigation is, is that um, for a lot of reasons, the story is more complicated than that. You're cutting in and, in and out a little bit there, Michael. So let me let me let me pick up for you if I can, uh, while maybe your connection improves. Uh, yeah, I think the story, as you say, it's not new in that we began covering this in 2017, uh, but there are two kind of new elements to it. So 
I think one is about the project's performance itself. And you've got this really damning slide in there, this chart that you've titled Reports Versus Reality. And uh, this, this chart really talks about the difference between how the project was reporting its results and how long the deliveries of these really essential health commodities were taking to actually arrive where they were needed. Uh, and this, this begins around the time that you know, the project was getting a lot of heavy criticism and a lot of scrutiny from the Hill and others. And you start to see, starting in around you know, 2018, those lines cross where it looks like the project is doing well in the way it reports what it's doing. And then the actual performance is going down all the way through to 2023. Um, obviously, some of this is disputed by the players involved, but I think that chart is an important one in terms of the, one of the main thrusts of the piece, which is to say the project itself has not succeeded on its core day-to-day job of delivering these, these commodities. But then there's almost a more important conclusion that the investigation comes to, which is, look, the reason USAID has been funding this kind of work is to eventually make supply chains in low and middle-income countries sustainable on their own. So that eventually it's not the U.S. government and some U.S. government contractors that are in there doing this work, but that countries have their own robust national you know, health supply system. And the conclusion the story seems to come to is that that has largely, that ha- that has largely failed. Um, and so I think this is you know, it's the biggest contract ever in foreign assistance. It is about to be continued in a new way in this next-gen contract, which is a series of a few contracts that together, I think, add up to about 17 billion US dollars. So it's a really critical story and issue. And and the the core case that the investigation is making, I think, calls into question whether this is going in the right direction. I guess, Fatima, I'd love, given your experience on both sides, you know, in Congress, looking at these kinds of projects, and then yourself, um, I, I left out of your bio that you ran you know, program operations at Oxfam America too. So you know this from the from the implementation side closely as well. You know, I wonder what your some of your takeaways are from a story like this. Well, first let me just say to Michael, Ben Stockton, and Ms. Bakan, congratulations. I mean, to do investigative reporting on how we're actually spending foreign aid, both the contract design, implementation, and oversight side is really tough and hard. And I know this has been an ongoing investigation. That's gone on for many years, um, triggered in part by requests for oversight from the Hill, and then, of course, USAID's um, own inspector general looking into this. I just saw the story break this morning, so I'm, I'm digging into it, and it's, it's incredibly fascinating and complex, so I don't want to pretend I, I know I'm up to speed on all the facts. But let me just zoom out a little bit for our, our listeners to just say that you know, when we have so much um, incredible resources and money that are doing life-saving work, and we certainly know that with our global health programming and how many lives it saved, um, you know, millions, over 25 million lives, um, thanks to these programs over the years. So, you know, I think the first thing we want to iterate and say is we know that these are life-saving programs, and this is the type of work we want to continue to fund, to do, and to implement. But how we do it really does matter. Um, And it's not enough to say we care. The mechanisms in which we have in place matter. And so first, I just want to say, you know, as someone who spent years on the Hill doing congressional oversight of U.S. foreign aid assistance, um, especially back then to Afghanistan, which was the largest um, recipient of U.S. foreign aid at that time, 
Um, there aren't a lot of mechanisms always in place for the oversight, um, uh, the oversight until in, until Congress, inspector generals, and civil society organizations, like in this case, DevEx and the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, kind of get involved and really dig in to say, what is the design? What is the implementation? What is the contract oversight? Um, so I'm very appreciative of, A, how much this takes to actually execute and do. B, I think it sends a message that um, when you're awarding these large-scale contracts and contracts that are set up in ways, there's a quote in, in the article here about, it, are these contracts set up in ways that are too big to fail, right? Um, you've put so many eggs in one basket with one contractor, and there's a chart in the article, the DevEx article that came out today, that shows how Commonix is something like five times as large as the next um, few contracts, uh, contracting official uh, organizations from USAID. Um, you're setting up mechanisms in a way that don't give you off ramps, right? As an implementing, as as USAID, and then the implementing partner, and you get stuck in these cycles. And there's a lot of um, great quotes and perspectives in the article and the reporting around frustration, incredible frustration at USAID and within Commonix as well about how do you really fix this in real time without sacrificing both quality control and future contracting opportunities. Um, so I, I think there's a tremendous amount here that's really worthy to unpack and then think through what are the mechanisms we have in place to, to do better oversight? What are the roles Capitol Hill can play in constructive ways? What I really like about this particular investigation coming from the Hill is it was bipartisan. It's not just about one party kind of just trying to take on the administration, but even these bipartisan investigations can be incredibly valuable for safeguarding our foreign aid resources. Yeah, there are so many lenses you could put on this, including the one where you started, which is you don't want an investigation like this to say, well, funding programs to save lives, you know, is something we shouldn't do because, look, they all fail. But on the other hand, getting the implementation right and especially delivering long term sustainable development, you know, what the former administrator of USAID, Mark Reed, used to talk about kind of working the agency out of a job. That that perspective here is really called into question by the realities of this story and and kind of the potential theatrical part here where you, you want to show you're doing a great job because you feel like you have to politically when maybe the reality isn't as good. Michael, I'm hoping your connection is stronger because on that point, I, I want to hear you describe this sort of Orwellian term that the piece uh, puts out there this idea of reason codes. Maybe you could explain what a reason code is and how it fits into this broader story. Yeah, sure. I will talk about reason codes, but let me just reflect quickly on on a couple of points that you've both made. So just to sort of put this into context and sort of um, lend some weight to this question about whether this investment, which is not just this project, by the way, but, you know, over a decade and a half of US government investment in the global health supply chain, um, whether it is sort of building that long-term um, sustainability and, and country ownership. I mean, I think the reason that's such an important question right now is that sustainability is really the watchword when it comes to US global health programs. If you look at what's happening with PEPFAR, and to be frank, a lot of it is happening in sort of a bad faith political environment, but the big question about PEPFAR is sort of about the durability of U.S. government support and what a sort of, you know, a reasoned, well-articulated, um, um, mutually agreed sort of long-term vision for these kinds of investments looks like vis-a-vis -vis 
you know, the government partners that they're operating with. And, you know, that conversation has been um, quite out in the open with respect to PEPFAR. And I think um, that's maybe not as much the case when it comes to this supply chain, which is a huge component of PEPFAR. And to put that in sort of stark relief, like a jumping off point for this project was that in 2013, when USAID officials sort of first described how this project was going to function, um, they hoped that it might be the last such project that they would have to fund because it would be so transformative. And, you know, 10 years later, the agency is undertaking a comprehensive redesign of the project. You know, someone who was involved in it closely described it as starting from almost a blank piece of paper. Um, and they have to do it, you know, they're doing it again with even more money. So I think there's just, there's a question that is begged by, by that simple set of facts. And so that's the, the kind of sustainability side of things. And then, you know, I think there, this does um, speak to uh, some of the big questions that Fatima is, is describing as well around, um, you know, how the work is done and how those doing the work are held accountable for delivering on promises made. And, you know, there was a really striking report from the inspector general in 2019 uh, that found that almost half of USAID awards did not achieve their results, but implementers still got paid. And so I think there's this fits into a, a big discussion about accountability and about um, you know how contracts are structured in order to deliver results. Um, that was a long answer, but let me talk about reason codes really quickly. So sure. <laughs> um, the reason codes that you're you're mentioning are are sort of these. Um, reporting devices that were incorporated into this project. They had been used in previous projects as, as well, but essentially they allowed um, the implementers to write off delayed shipments um, that were delayed for reasons outside of their manageable control um, with USAID's approval. Uh, but what we you know, found in speaking to people who worked directly on the project and, and also what the inspector general found was that um, the use of these reason codes was was pretty extensive. And it all just sort of adds up to a picture where, um, you know, the statement in the, in the OIG report is something like USAID was, is now sort of unable to determine um, whether improvements um, in the reporting constitute actual improvements in, in performance. Right. So it becomes this theatrical thing where they were saying, hey, we, we're going to have much longer lead times for delivery of these essential commodities, because that way it gives us a really big window in which we can say everything's on time. And so in a sense, they were delivering too early often in those windows. And so then they'd have to create a reason code around that. So it was, you know, in a sense, like if you're sitting on the tarmac in an, in an airplane and, and they're, they're keeping it on the tarmac so they can say it wasn't delayed. Uh, it, it's, it's a bit of a, a game. And it seems like at the end of the day, a system that worked more effectively would actually deliver the products when they're needed and also would report when that wasn't the case. And it, it feels like at least the reason codes are one part of a, of a kind of a, a way of, of shading that from public view. Yeah, it certainly raises questions about, about what mechanisms exist to allow, you know, accurate public scrutiny of the project. Yeah. And I, and I think fundamentally, I think it calls into question USAID as a procurement agency, which is really core to what it does. I mean, Fatima, you were 
responsible for procurement at a much smaller agency, Millennium Challenge Corporation. Uh, so you have some sense of what the, the challenges are there. But I guess it's fair to ask, you know, is this just the reality of USAID being given such a huge mandate, being told we are going to deliver at scale these kinds of essential commodities and you've got to find a way to do it through the standard procurement process that that they have. You know, I think you mentioned in the story, Michael, that this is kind of at the scale of what we expect to see from the Department of Defense. It's not the typical U.S. government aid program. And maybe it was just in a way designed at a scale that doesn't make sense for USAID. I wonder, Fatima, how how you would take on a challenge like this, uh, given the reality that, that Congress wants, there was bipartisan support for getting these health commodities to save lives. You know, Raj, it's funny. When I read this story this morning, I actually thought about what would I do if I had to go in and help fix this situation? You know, um, where would I start? And I think one thing that I'm always really humbled about having served in many of these institutions is there's a lot of rigidity in processes that institutions like USAID are unable to to fix because they're really kind of baked in, um, you know, they're really kind of baked in either from congressional legislation or, you know, overrides that the Hill has put on or just kind of cultural norms that have been built in throughout the years of the institution. And so there are certain procurement guidelines that the agency has to operate in, I'm sure Um, we know that. Um, And when you're starting to set things up at the scales that kind of you know, blow the normal size out of the water, it can be very hard to kind of tailor it to a custom custom fit approach because you're still bound by a lot of your either legislative authorities or congressional oversight pieces that let you only operate in a certain way. So first, the lack of flexibility that an agency like USAID has today to do its job in ways that are more agile, nimble, flexible, and with the kind of more private sector-led approaches that we know are the direction we all have to go in, I can imagine is a huge source of frustration. I think if I were working at USAID and trying to kind of work to either fix or address this situation, that would be one of the first things I would try to really understand is what can and can I not do? What are my operating parameters of that? The second piece is then around oversight. I mean, do you have the technical contract and procurement staff in-house that really understands the complexities of these contracts, understands how to do effective oversight? I mean, these the size and scale of what we're talking about, $9.5 billion, is, as Michael said, the largest um, USAID contract uh, it doesn't just take a couple of officers to be able to do this. You you are moving um, bureaus and machines around as the top priority, which means they're going to be deprioritizing something else. You're not adding new staff. You're not adding extra resources in, in, in order to be able to do more effective implementation. So this trade-off effect that we're always facing within these cash-strapped institutions to do effective work at scale um, is something that we're going to have to contend with, you know, um, how, how we do this. And then the third piece that I was thinking about and reflecting around this is what are the consequences when, you, when you're not doing a good job? What are the accountability measures that are either put in um, at the USAID level, at the contractor level for commonics, at the, in, the accountability level when you skim these OIG reports and um, the congressional investigations? Where are the penalties? Where are the consequences of where of what accountability looks like, um, especially in terms of who gets future contracts, right? And what the consequences are for that. 
you know, very there's a lot of people, I think, in the, in the foreign aid world who are really interested in lobbying for more resources, for making the case for why these resources are incredibly important, as, as I believe that they are. But there's not as much, I think, in that sophistication or investment, I would say, in the actual implementation, contract procurement management, and oversight capacities and the resources that you need. I mean, I imagine I haven't worked at the Department of Defense, but I imagine the amount of resources they have to do effective oversight, contract, and procurement operations and implementation far surpasses that of USAID or any of the foreign aid um, infrastructure that we have in the U.S. government. So. I think that's something we're really going to have to contend with is, you know, why we keep um, cash strapping resources of these agencies to do the jobs that we are asking them to do. Can I just say something after that? I, I just Please. think that's, that's so well put. And, um, you know, from the outset, I think we really looked at this as an investigation of systems or a system and, you know, the ways that limitations, incentives, um, you know, uh, personnel constraints all sort of uh, lead to an outcome that is very different than the one that was sort of hoped for at the outset. So, you know, those are really exactly the kinds of of questions that I at least hoped um, this investigation would would provoke. And so it's really encouraging to hear that it is. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, accountability and kind of agility are two sides of the same coin. Because there has to be both an incentive and some kind of repercussion when something isn't working. And so I I think it's natural in in these kinds of stories to look at the contractor. And I'm not saying the contractor doesn't deserve some blame here. But ultimately, USAID is the one setting up the rules of the road. And if, if they're setting up very large scale projects that don't have significant consequences when things aren't going right, as well as maybe incentives that allow organizations to innovate, to try to do things in a nimble, agile way that actually improve results. If those aren't baked in to the way the project is designed, then you sort of get what you designed for. And, you know, I think it's worth asking, especially as we have a, you know, a a very large scale $17 billion follow on series of projects to come out of this, whether those will have the kinds of incentives and consequences that this one seemed to lack. I think and many not- are asking that question and, and eagerly awaiting more information about what the next gen contract will look like. And I mean, it's fascinating that they double the size of the contract, um, you know, and where, where you know, how you're going to do this further at scale. Right. I think, you know, Prashant Yadav, who we all know is a, a real expert in this area of global health supply chains, he's quoted in the piece and kind of calling into question why IBM was chosen you know, was it just uh, as a kind of IT partner on the project, was it just sort of a check the box exercise, you know, really big global technology company? See, we've got, you know, we've got somebody here, we're, we're doing tech. Uh, and, and the piece details some of the challenges the project has had, significant challenges around the, the technology side of this, which is so core to being able to develop a modern global health supply chain. You know, were they picked to check the box or are we really, you know, doing what you might expect, which is the more, you know, nimble approach to, to to laying out technology in a project like this, seeing what works, some things are going to fail, but then some things are going to work and you have an incentive to invest more in those. And if that's not designed into the project, you're kind of going to get maybe what what we ended up getting. And there there is a, 
you know, a piece in, in here, I think it was a quote from USAID, a spokesperson there saying, of the 28 countries that reported on this metric, and, and here the metric uh, refers to a technical independence metric to see whether, you know, local supply chains are kind of becoming more independent. Um, of the 28 countries that have reported on this metric, over two thirds have achieved technical independence in at least one supply chain function since the metric was established in 2016. And the story goes on to point out, well, that means that, you know, a third or roughly half have not achieved technical independence on a single metric. Um, so it really, it, you know, it's as kind of as damning as it gets in terms of what USAID is going for, which is a long-term sustainable approach to global health supply chains. Yeah. And, you know, I would just point out that there's also very sort of little publicly available information about what any of that looks like. You know, there's been one full-scale evaluation of the project, a midterm evaluation, um, and then the only other independent evaluations that exist of sort of the project activities are at the country level. And one of them was requested by mission staff who were concerned about how well it was performing. So, you know, it would be great if there was more that journalists like me and my great partners on this project um, could look at to say, you know, to, to be able to, to understand better um, how USAID is thinking about what success looks like in handing off a project to the private sector or to a, a partner government, um, you know, independently um, produced evaluations of different aspects of the, the supply chain that are made publicly available. You know, a lot of the stuff that we found was actually put out by the Global Fund and their inspector general. They work closely alongside USAID in a lot of cases and um, seem to be producing more kind of public documentation of the state of health supply chains in the countries where they operate than we were able to, to find in publicly available USAID records. This isn't in the story, but you know, I still have a FOIA request pending with USAID. Um, it came back with very, very little. Um, it was a request for all of the evaluations. And uh, it came back with only the one that I mentioned. And so I, um, I uh, appealed that decision. And the appeal was upheld, but I'm still waiting for the results of that request. So it's just, you know, even getting the information, having a sort of public conversation about this is, is challenging. Yeah, that's so important. That's the only way you're going to improve, right? We have to have some light on this. And, you know, ideally, it's light that isn't, you know, highly politicized. That's always the danger um, that opponents of foreign assistance come out and say, look, none of this works. You know, I don't think that's what the story is saying. And uh, as Fatima said at the outset, this, you know, PEPFAR has been a huge bipartisan success story. Uh, but this element of it is really important. Um, and as you said, Michael, it's really important in the context of now PEPFAR losing some of the bipartisan support that it's long had and, you know, questions about how much longer it will go on in the way it has as a program. It's just essential that, that countries develop their own, you know, local domestic indigenous uh, capabilities in this area. Um, and so hopefully this next gen contract that's, you know, it is larger, uh, it is changed. It's you know, apparently there's some big differences, but we'll see what those are. Hopefully it's designed in a way that's actually gonna be more likely to succeed than this, this last version.
Are you looking for the inside story on what's happening at organisations like the World Bank, USAID or the Gates Foundation? Then you need to be reading DevX Pro. I'm Jessica Abrahams and I'm the editor of DevX Pro. Pro is DevX's premium news subscription, where our expert reporters and analysts take you beyond the headlines, deep into the trends and institutions shaping the $200 billion aid industry. As well as all our news, you'll get access to conversations with global development leaders, resources to help you grow in your career, and a subscriber-only newsletter full of insider news and tidbits. See for yourself by getting a free trial today at devx.com slash pro. I thought maybe we'd mention a couple of other stories. Uh, it makes me think of another piece that we published this week, um, a study. You know, there's so many studies in, in global development, but this one's actually pretty interesting uh, in that it gets to the core question, talking about the politics of aid, it gets to the core question of does investments in global development, do those investments actually reduce migration? And you know, if you think about the politics, especially in, in Europe and in the US, so much is centered on that question. And the study is really fascinating. In part, it uses data from Gallup asking people about their intentions to move. But, but essentially what it found is that you know, when you invest in global development, regular migration is going to go up and irregular migration is going to go down. And in a sense, that's what you want. I mean, this is kind of suggesting that what proponents of, of aid for this purpose um, are saying is actually true, that, that you're going to end up with a situation where people are less likely to feel they have to urgently flee uh, because their situation is so untenable where they live, they might be able to stay longer and make their own plans. And those plans might include, in the future, applying for a visa and getting a work permit and actually coming through a more regular, uh, a regular approach to immigration. I don't know if either of you saw that story and have a thought. Yeah, well, I can come in. You know, I, re- I did read the story, and um, I've been perusing the study. And congrats again to um, the Institute for the World Economy that put out the policy brief on it this this month. You know what? You know, Raj, what really kind of struck struck me in this, and then actually quite a few stories that DevX covered this week is this idea of when you actually dig into the evidence, what is the evidence telling us that starts to demystify some of the assumptions we're making about foreign aid? So in this case, the authors um, actually looked at at, at whether or not, um, looking at causal analysis, looking at the micro level evidence across all developing countries that received assistance from the World Bank between 2008 and 2019, they disentangled the impacts of foreign aid on various aspects of migration, Um, And then they came up with these conclusions that you summarized um, just now that really in some ways kind of um, bring into question some of the assumptions that are out in the popular discourse around the links between foreign aid and migration. And um, one of the things that in something that, you know, uh, I work on a lot with our faculty and colleagues up here at the Center for International Development at Harvard is what is the evidence around foreign aid and development assistance actually say, and how do we then derive policies that actually work for our societies in doing that versus this mythology that I think that has kind of taken place um, over the years and then become highly politicized. Um, So, you know, what I really appreciate about this particular piece is this idea that while we know foreign aid is not a fix for, you know, irregular migration, uh, 
the history of the world, certainly in, in all of our societies of, of migration patterns, is when you can create policies that bring you the type of migration with skills, with workers that are contributing to your economy, um, and with workers that um, have e easier pathways to succeed, uh, whether that's education or experience, um, et cetera, you know, that's a win-win. These can be win-win policies for all of us and kind of give us path off ramps to these really frightening numbers of what we're seeing right now with conflict and displacement happening all around the world. So uh, I thought it was a really interesting story. I really uh, urge readers to take a look at the story and then to check out the actual study that the Institute put together in their Kiel policy brief. Yeah, I, I agree. I, um, I haven't actually read the whole study myself, but one of the key points that comes out in the, in the piece is that uh, irregular migration and especially refugee flows, asylum seekers, are cut around the world, except in the most fragile countries of sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, I think that's an interesting point where perhaps the level of fragility in some countries, and this is my assumption, not, not something I've seen in the piece or in, in the report, but perhaps the level of fragility in some countries is so low that once people get a small handhold on the first rung of the ladder and they have just a little bit of money due to some aid spending, they have the ability to, to try to flee and try to get out of the situation that they're in. Um, whereas it appears in countries that are less fragile, you actually end up seeing fewer asylum seekers um, as a result of this assistance. But as you say, Fatima, it's a really nuanced picture, which is so important for all of us who care about these issues and want to make sure the investments are made in the right way. Um, Michael, did you have any thoughts about this story? It's a fascinating piece. And fa I also need to read through the, the whole study, but um, I thought our colleague Rob did a great job um, wrapping it up. I, um, you know, I just think the politics on this issue are so fascinating and complicated because, you know, you do see foreign aid advocates appeal to different constituencies using different outcome arguments. And so to sort of take one of those, in this case, the effects of aid on migration and to really dig into it um, is, yes, like an incredibly valuable service and it's a fascinating um, um, set of findings, but also, you know, it'll just be interesting to see how that sort of plays into the politics and advocacy around foreign aid. You sort of, you know, I wonder, could you do an equivalent sort of study to look at, um, you know, the effects of foreign aid on countering China or any of these other sort of, you know, big sort of political selling points that are sometimes brought up to, to advocate for, for the, the aid budget. Yeah, it is amazing how, how front and center these issues are now in the donor countries. I mean, we're just a year away now from a U.S. presidential election in which what's happening on our southern border is likely to play once again a big role. And the administration, you know, has, has made a big effort to invest in Central America, uh, to invest in some of the countries where, you know, people are really living in very challenging circumstances and, and, and fleeing as a result. Um, and including the big program that the, the now president of the World Bank, Ajay Banga, was leading as the chairman, this uh, Partnership for Central America, a private sector-led initiative that raised some $4 billion, hoping to create employment in the countries of Central America. So this has been a major effort of the Biden-Harris administration, and, and it connects very much to probably what we'll be talking about a lot over the course of the next year. And you could make parallels across many of the major donor countries of of Western Europe and Northern Europe. So 
it, it really is a key issue. Maybe just one other story because we're we're running a little late here um, from this week that caught caught my attention, and it's the story about the loss and damage fund. Uh, did you see this one, Fatima? Yeah, I did, and I know COP twenty is right around the corner. It sure is. Yeah, I mean, what do you, what do you think about this agreement that was made, which is that the World Bank is going to host this loss and damage fund, even though the U.S. has kind of stood outside of this agreement for now. So, you know, I when I when I read the story that came out and saw the outcome of these negotiations and the lead up to COP twenty eight. Um, you know, it's. I know there's a lot of unhappiness. It sounds like on, on many sides of, of where of where we landed on on, on this fund. Um, on the other hand, you know, I'm glad to see that we did actually reach a way forward. Um, the World Bank has histories with hosting like-minded funds. We've tried different types of trust funds and other mechanisms in the past, um, certainly to some success. So. You know, the the real question I think that's going to come out at COP28 and then beyond is who's going to fund it, you know, and when we end up with voluntary contributions, we're already seeing the climate financing gaps that have come out and the numbers that have come out and how far we off, far are off we are from the Paris commitments. Um, I can expect a lot of really intense conversations at COP28 around what does this actually look like? Um, are developing countries expected to take on more and more of the burden, which we all know ends up becoming debt financing um, in ways that just add to their overall debt burden? Uh, what responsibility will the United States and other developed economies actually take for the loss and damage fund? And will it go beyond kind of political rhetoric um, you know, between the developing uh, economies and um, the G7? And I think that's going to raise some really hard questions at COP28 to see where the rubber really hits the road. And we know kind of we're running out of time to make some of these commitments and the climate financing gap continues to escalate in ways that are hard to imagine how we're going to catch up and minimize these gaps. So, um, you know, I am glad to see that there was a way forward. I appreciate how everyone seems unhappy on many sides with the deal, which I guess is the art of compromise in some ways, at least for political negotiations. But, you know, I think negotiators and um, delegations are going to have to hammer out a COP28 you know, where the money in general is going to come on, but both for loss and damage, but for the broader climate financing gaps, particularly around climate um, infrastructure that we're going to have to see that are in the trillions. Michael, you've been just a little bit busy with your own piece, but did you have a chance to look at this story by Chloe Ferrand and any, any thoughts from you? I did. Yeah. And shout out to Chloe. She's been doing some really great work for us. And uh, this piece I thought was really well laid out. Um, I, I First of all, I think everything that Fatima just just said is is exactly right um, and sets the stage well for for COP twenty eight. I will be there, um, and one thing that you know I've heard and that I'll be watching really closely is that I think um, you know this is just a sort of another another entry point into the um, you know the fact that COP twenty eight is going to be a really big moment for the World Bank and for its new president AJ Banga um, to really show like what it means for them to be this climate forward institution that he's been talking about and how that represents, you know, a major shift for the institution and, you know, how they, how they go about um, hosting the loss and damage fund, but also, um, you know, describing how they plan to host it with to civil, the civil society actors who are very concerned about that. You know, I think it's going to be a delicate, um, a delicate moment and a, a really important one for him to build that 
kind of trust, at least for the the medium term. And one thing that I've heard people want to see is, you know, less of the sort of big, new, splashy World Bank announcement at COP28 and more of the here is what here's what we're doing about the boring internal stuff that will actually make us able to be more responsive to, um, you know, our borrowers and uh, um, climate concerned parties. Yeah, just if it wasn't hard enough, there's a there's a part of Chloe's story that details that there's kind of a safety valve for the critics here who didn't want the World Bank to get this hosting responsibility that in just the next year, um, there will be two check-in stages to ensure that the bank is meeting all the conditions that were set up for it to be the host. And, and if it's found that it isn't, there's an exit clause so that there would be the creation of a standalone loss and damage fund like two years from now. And, and if that doesn't happen, then four years from now, there'll be yet another moment when they'll have a chance countries can decide, you know, do they want the World Bank to continue running this or based on an independent performance assessment, will they break it off and create you know, something new, sort of something like the Green Climate Fund, perhaps. Uh, so it's, it's a high bar already for Ajay Banga in his new role as president of the World Bank and trying to turn it into this development plus climate bank. Uh, and, and even just this, this fund and, and the, is going to get a lot of scrutiny. Uh, but of course, it's all irrelevant, as Fatima says, unless it gets funded. Yeah, I feel like you can you can physically feel the intensity of the negotiations in some of those provisions and just imagine, you know, how late some of these talks dragged into the night. Um, and it's it's fascinating that in the end they reached a deal and, and now there's going to be a lot of pressure um, and scrutiny on, on how it plays out. Yeah, well, this does a good job, I think, setting the stage for our coverage uh, of COP28. You'll be there. I'll be there. We'll have a whole team. And, uh, you know, more and more of these questions are so connected to the big institutions we cover and the core development themes we cover. So uh, stay tuned for more. I want to I thank Fatima Sumar for joining us today. It's great to have your insights. Thank you, Fatima. Thanks. It's so great to be with you and Michael, Raj. Thanks. Uh, and congratulations, Michael and colleagues on, on this uh, fantastic story. It's really an important investigation. I'm glad that, uh, that we got it out there. Um, and I want to thank uh, all of the, the DevEx production team, Lauren Evans, uh, Tom, Cherip, and, and everybody who helps make uh, This Week in Global Development happen. Thanks to all of you listening to this live and in the recorded podcast. Uh, if you don't, and I can't believe you wouldn't by now, but if you don't subscribe to our daily newsletter, uh, The Newswire, please go ahead and do it. You'll, this is, that's the way to get all this, this news first in your inbox. Uh, and we really appreciate our global community of development professionals all around the world. Um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.